Good morning. My name is Seymour Uberfeld. Welcome to our second installment on sleep apnea. In our first presentation, I reviewed basic information on sleep apnea. In today's talk, in conjunction with Drs. Harley Greenberg and Mark Shikowitz, we will introduce INSPIRE, an exciting new treatment for this important medical condition. The current treatment options for sleep apnea do not fully address the problem. For every patient that uses CPAP, there are one or two they will not even consider it. Even the good sleep apnea patients, sleep apnea CPAP patients, typically do not use the CPAP for the entire night. Dental appliances have their own issues, and they do not work for everyone. Most patients are unwilling to consider the current surgical options. Inspire therapy, as Drs. Greenberg and Shikowitz will explain, may offer a new option for those sleep apnea patients who are not served by our current treatment modalities. We will first hear from Dr. Harley Greenberg, Chief of the Division of Pulmonary and Critical Care Medicine at Northwell, who will discuss how INSPIRE works. We will then hear from Dr. Mark Shikowitz, Vice Chairman of the Department of Otolaryngology and the Director of the Zucker Sinus Center at Northwell, who will discuss how the device is implanted. We will then have a brief roundtable to discuss how INSPIRE fits into our current treatment modalities. I'm Dr. Harley Greenberg, Chief of the Division of Pulmonary Critical Care and Sleep Medicine and Medical Director of the Northwell Sleep Disorder Center. We'd like to discuss an exciting new development in treatment options for obstructive sleep apnea, that is hypoglossal nerve stimulation therapy. Our program for hypoglossal nerve stimulation uh, is a joint program between the Sleep Disorders Center and the Department of Otolaryngology. Uh, Dr. Mark Shikowitz is our ENT surgeon who's integrally involved in this program. So let's start with a little bit of basics about obstructive sleep apnea. The core pathophysiologic problem in sleep apnea is obstruction of the upper airway during sleep. That induces fragmentation and disturbances of sleep, and intermittent hypoxia and reoxygenation that has multiple systemic consequences that lead to the core features of this syndrome. Obstructive sleep apnea disturbs and disrupts sleep first and foremost, leading to daytime sleepiness, which impairs cognitive function, vigilance, memory, and most importantly can lead to unintentional sleep episodes during dangerous activities, such as while driving. The features of obstructive sleep apnea also lead to systemic consequences. It can affect the cardiovascular system, the cerebrovascular system. It can cause metabolic dysfunction. And sleep apnea has also been linked in some studies to some forms of cancer. So it is an important multi-system disease with important multi-system consequences that occur via various mechanisms. These risks are not trivial. Decades of observational studies have shown significantly increased odds ratios of severe medical consequences such as stroke, overall mortality, hypertension, heart failure, uh, that ranges in two to fourfold compared to subjects without sleep apnea. Most importantly, occupational accidents including motor vehicle accidents, are increased almost double-fold in patients with obstructive sleep apnea. Our therapeutic options for sleep apnea are known to many of you. CPAP therapy has been around for decades in its various forms. Oral appliances, which advance the jaw forward during sleep, are useful, but mostly for patients with more mild sleep apnea. 
We've done various surgical procedures on the upper airway for many years, and many of those have had important effective impacts on sleep apnea. Weight loss is also important, and bariatric surgery can be used in some patients. But what we're going to focus on today is this exciting new development of hypoglossal nerve stimulation for sleep apnea. Why do we need a new therapy? Well, most of you are aware of the adherence problems with our first-line treatment, CPAP. If we arbitrarily define adherence with a very low bar, that is uh, usage of four hours per night for 70% of nights, you can see that objective adherence data shows that only about 40 uh, to about 80% of individuals adhere to therapy given this low bar definition. And even of those who adhere initially, only about 60% remain compliant to therapy five years later. So while this is a very effective treatment, adherence is problematic. CPAP is effective because it improves the functional outcomes of this disease. It improves daytime sleepiness, it improves sleep quality, improves cognitive function, vigilance, and reduces drowsy driving episodes. Uh, it has positive impacts on systemic hypertension, uh, but the impacts on overall cardiovascular and cerebrovascular risk are variable as is the impact on metabolic risk, such as diabetes. Why is it variable? Most likely because adherence is problematic. So if we could have a therapy that would be more widely used, not just for four hours, but for the entirety of the night, we might have a better impact on these adverse outcomes. So new therapeutic options for sleep apnea are sorely needed. So let's look at uh, the anatomic basis for obstructive sleep apnea and where hypoglossal nerve stimulation fits in. Patients with obstructive sleep apnea have impaired upper airway anatomy. Their airway is narrow, both due to enlargement in the soft tissues of the upper airway, as well as narrowing of the airway due to their bony structure of their craniofacial uh, bony structures. So if you look at this cross-sectional MRI, uh, the healthy individual depicted on the right, the sleep apnea patient on the left, uh, you can see that the area behind the tongue base and behind the soft palate is patent and open in the normal individual, but in the sleep apnea patient, you can see the area behind the soft palate and the area behind the base of the tongue, which is the airway through which we breathe, is compromised as far as its dimensions are concerned. And why is the base of tongue so important? On the left-hand side is a sleep apnea patient, the right-hand side a normal subject. Not only is the base of tongue enlarged, but it is enlarged with deposition of adipose tissue throughout the base of the tongue that is what enlarges it and narrows the airway. So anatomy is the basis for obstructive sleep apnea. Uh, you have to have impaired upper airway anatomy to have obstructive sleep apnea. But anatomy is not the whole story. We have very powerful and important muscles in the upper airway that maintain its patency. These muscles serve to bring the base of tongue forward and to widen the airway. The upper airway dilator muscles, of which the tongue muscle or the genioglossus muscle is one of the biggest and most important upper airway muscles, receive respiratory drive from the brainstem during wakefulness as well as during sleep. 
that respiratory drive is comprised of tonic activity, which keeps these muscles stiff, and that stiffens and maintains the patency of the upper airway. And these muscles also receive phasic drive during inspiration that opens the airway uh, in the face of every breath we take to keep it patent uh, during inspiration. The problem is that muscle drive, that neural drive to the upper airway muscles declines from wakefulness to non-rapid eye movement sleep and it declines even further during REM sleep. So if you have an impaired or narrowed airway anatomy and you have insufficient drive to your upper airway dilator muscles to keep it open, the airway can then obstruct during sleep. So this is where hypoglossal nerve stimulation occurs. The hypoglossal nerve, as most of you will remember, is the 12th cranial nerve, and it innervates the genioglossus muscle as well as the geniohyoid muscle. And when that, both in a phasic manner in conjunction with inspiration as well as in a tonic manner, it pushes the base of tongue forward, opening the airway. So what has been developed with the new Inspire Upper Airway Stimulation System is a stimulator that's implanted under the skin. It has a uh, stimulating lead that is tunneled under the skin and implanted around the hypoglossal nerve, and you'll hear more about how that's done later. And it also has a sensing lead that's implanted uh, in the intercostal space. This is all done subcutaneously. There's minimal scarring at the surface. Patients are given a remote control. They can turn this on when they go to sleep and turn it off in the morning, as well as titrate the degree of stimulation. So the way this works is there's a stimulating electrode that stimulates the hypoglossal nerve only during inspiration. The device knows that because the sensor senses when you're breathing in and creates a degree of stimulation that occurs only during inspiration, keeping the upper airway open when you're breathing in. So what does Inspire therapy look and feel like? So when the hypoglossal nerve stimulator is turned on, it senses inspiration, stimulates the genioglossus muscle or tongue muscle to push the tongue forward. So in this individual, the stimulator is turned on, and when the individual takes a breath in, you can see the tongue actually moving forward with each breath that opens the back of the airway. Patients might feel a mild tingling sensation, but they usually get used to this quite easily and it's not problematic. The Inspire stimulator improves the dimensions of the upper airway. In this endoscopic view, we can see both the tongue base as well as the uh, area behind the soft palate. When the stimulator is turned on from no stimulation to more maximal levels, you can see the opening of the airway behind the base of the tongue outlined in red here. And the airway also opens behind the soft palate. So you can go from a pinhole sized airway here to a wide open airway here with activation of the genioglossus of, uh, muscle and hypoglossal nerve stimulation. In this polysomnographic record, before the stimulator is turned on, this patient is having obstructive apneas. You see the airflow signal here showing no flow. You see the oxygen saturation showing recurrent dips in the oxygen saturation. As soon as the stimulator is turned on, these apneas go away. Normal breathing and normal oxygen saturation ensues.
when we bring these patients into the sleep laboratory, we can actually titrate the degree of stimulation by turning up the voltage on the stimulator so that we can begin to eliminate these obstructive apneas, which you see here, and then result in a normal, clear breathing pattern and normal oxygen saturation at this patient's optimal degree of stimulation. So, does it work? The data that indicates the efficacy of this trial, of this treatment, that led to the FDA approval has been called the STAR trial. It is, uh, stands for Stimulation Treatment for Apnea Reduction. It was an international multi-center trial. It enrolled patients with moderate to severe obstructive sleep apnea, but notice the enrollees all had a body mass index of 32 or less. The other thing that you'll hear about more is that this therapy works best in a subset of patients with obstructive sleep apnea who have complete anterior-posterior collapse of their upper airway and not concentric collapse or uh, collapse in a rounded manner of the upper airway. And you can see the data from the STAR trial. Patients at baseline had a severe degree of obstructive sleep apnea, about 30 apneas per hour. 12 months into treatment, they were nearly normal. And in one group, the therapy was withdrawn, and you can see their apnea severity went right back up to baseline. This trial was extended out for 36 months. You can see, again, the, dur the durability of the response. Apnea hypopnea index in the severe range at baseline, and at 36 months, it stayed nearly normal. These patients had improvements in daytime function that was sustained over uh, 36 months uh, and improvements in daytime sleepiness, which was sustained over 36 months. So this is an effective and durable therapy. That was some of the initial trials. We now have a post-marketing study that was uh, done in Germany. That study was done at three academic centers, including 60 patients, um, and those individuals were followed up over 12 months. And once again, you see the reproducibility of this response, starting at severe sleep apnea levels, at six months down to very mild levels in the majority of the patients, improvements in daytime function, and improvements in daytime sleepiness uh, observed at six months into this trial. So uh, who should Inspire therapy or hypoglossal nerve stimulation therapy be considered for? Adults 22 years of age and older, um, moderate to severe sleep apnea, apnea hypopnea index of 15 to 65, uh, but this is good for a specific phenotype of patients with obstructive sleep apnea, those who are not terribly obese, that have a body mass index of 32 or less, and those who have anterior-posterior collapse of the upper airway. You'll hear about that a little bit more from Dr. Shikowitz later, rather than concentric collapse, who have either failed CPAP therapy or have been unable or unwilling to use it. So that ends uh, this presentation on uh, the basics. Uh, I'm going to turn it over to Dr. Shikowitz, who will talk to you more about the selection of patients and what actually is entailed in implantation of this stimulator. Hello, I am Mark Shikowitz. I am the Vice Chairman of the Department of Otolaryngology, as well as the Director of the Zucker Sinus Center for Northwell Health and have been involved in sleep medicine for over 30 years. The newest therapy is probably the most exciting, 
and that is something you've heard about from Dr. Greenberg, and that is hypoglossal nerve stimulation for sleep apnea, which is probably the most physiologic and natural way that we can help patients with sleep apnea. Inspire therapy, or hypoglossal nerve stimulation, right now has limited indications so that the patients can get the best possible results of this new type of therapy. As you see, it's only in adults 22 years or older. You need a specific range of sleep apnea. It's AHI between 15 and 65 per hour. The patient has to have tried other forms of acceptable therapy for sleep apnea and has to have failed CPAP or one of its other forms, which is right now the most common form of acceptable treatment for this disease. The appropriate airway anatomy, what we'll talk about later, or anterior and posterior collapse of the airway is crucial for the success of this therapy. And the way we would determine this is by a drug-induced sleep endoscopy, also known as DICE, and it allows us to mimic the patient's actual collapse of his airway during sleep. Here is our pre-op anatomical assessment, or DICE procedure. And what you're going to see is that patients who collapse in an anterior posterior, or AP diameter, are good candidates for this therapy, and those that have concentric collapse, or circular collapse, are not. And many times our patients who are very anxious for this new type of therapy will ask, why am I not a good candidate? Why can I not have this therapy? And the answer is, research has shown that unless you have an airway that collapses in the appropriate manner, the therapy is not going to work. So let's take a look at our patient who is a good candidate on the left. This is done in the operating room setting with the patient in a sleep-induced state, and you can see how his airway is going from top to bottom and collapsing completely. Now if you look at our patient on the right, you'll see that his airway is collapsing in a circular fashion. It's a little round hole, and the bottom and the top are not coming together. This patient is not going to have success with this therapy, and unfortunately would not be a good candidate. So what do we do, and how does this work? Well, it has three parts. One is the actual stimulation of the nerve. The second part is the pulse generator seen here, and that gives the electrical stimulation to the nerve in order for it to do its work. And the third is how do we figure out, or how will the device figure out, whether it's supposed to send a signal. And there we have a sensor that is actually in the intercostal muscles of the chest, so that every time you try to take a breath, it sends a signal to the neurostimulator, who then sends a signal up the chain to the nerve, and it opens up your airway. This is natural and physiologic. It allows you to breathe when you are going to breathe. It doesn't try to force air. It doesn't try and open up your airway. It allows you to open up your airway. So how about the surgery itself? The surgery, again, has three different parts. The area to approach the nerve, the area to place the stimulating device, and finally, an area where we can put in a sensor lead into the chest wall. The surgery is all done sterilely. It's done in subcutaneous manner. It only requires three small incisions, which are all closed in a plastic surgery closure fashion, and you virtually will not see where the surgery was done. Everything is connected 
through tunnels, no large incisions. So planning for the neck decision, everything is small, it's minimal, and it is accurate. As you can see on each patient that we do, we actually draw out the anatomy to be sure that we know exactly where we are going. We minimize the amount of incision by pre-planning every patient, and it is reproducible in every case. The pocket that we put the nerve stimulator in is also in an area that is not obtrusive to the patient, does not interfere later with physical activity. In order to accommodate patient's lifestyle, the incision and placement of the generator can be moved from the traditional right side to the left side, whatever allows the patient continue a normal life. The sensor lead is placed in the fifth intercostal space. It is placed between the ribs. An incision is planned in a very inconspicuous place and will avoid being seen postoperatively. Also a concern in women is that we're very careful in how we locate this incision under the breast so it does not again interfere in their lifestyle or their clothing. In order to determine how and where the nerve and the base of tongue moves forward and which muscles we are going to stimulate, two leads are placed at the beginning of the procedure. One, as you can see, is placed into the genioglossus in the floor of the mouth, and this is the set of muscles you want to see move. The second lead is placed along the lateral aspect of the tongue, and if this is stimulated, the tongue will move backwards instead of forward, and again, this is not where you want to see the stimulation. Most of this procedure is very super selective. Not only where we do the surgery, where the incisions are placed, but actually the individual groups of muscles that we choose to stimulate. When the surgery is being performed, you can see this incision under the mandible, and you can see a probe right here that's our nerve stimulation probe, where we can actually individually stimulate different branches of the nerve itself. And we do this intraoperatively to see which branches of the nerve we want to include in stimulation and which branches of the nerve we do not want to include. So this is a super selective dissection of individual branches of the hypoglossal nerve, and we determine which ones we want to keep in our stimulation device by stimulating them and watching which of the muscles are activated. Here's a diagram showing exactly what we're trying to do with our tongue. We place the cuff or stimulation device around our hypoglossal nerve. Here we can see that we only want to include nerve branches that are stimulating the tongue muscles to make the tongue move forward and not to include any of the branches of the nerve that'll make the tongue move backwards. And when you have the correct nerve branches stimulated, the tongue actually protrudes in what we call almost a surfboard fashion. It becomes stiff and comes forward, opening the airway, as well as the back of the tongue will actually move forward and open up the lower part of the airway. The cuff placement is crucial. We spend a lot of time determining exactly which nerves we want to include and the cuff placement is super selective only for those nerves that will move the tongue and the base of the tongue forward and open up the patient's airway. The pocket is much like the pocket of a pacemaker. It is a very specific size. You do not want it to be too large or too big. We do not want the instrument to have room to move around. 
yet big enough so it lies comfortably, period. Blunt dissection ensures that there is not a lot of discomfort postoperatively, and patients very rarely notice that they even have the device. The sensing lead has a sensor that goes against the outer layer of the chest wall in the area of the lungs, and every time your patient is going to take a breath, this picks up the muscle movement where the lung is trying to expand and take in air, which then sends stimulation up the chain from here to the sensing device and then to the nerve itself. So as soon as this device picks up muscle movement, your airway is open to allow air to pass naturally into your airway and then the lungs. So what is the effect? If you look at the diagram on the left, we can see that without stimulation, there is a very tiny airway. And as the patient tries to breathe on their own, there's almost no room for the air to get through. We can also see that without stimulation, the palate is not opening. Again, not allowing air to go into the airway. Now let's take a look at what happens when we use a little gentle stimulation. Again, anatomically, we can see what should happen is our airway now has space and will open. And here you can see the base of the tongue has moved forward and a rather large area that allows air to be able to move down through the airway. And if we look at the palate, as opposed to the one in the non-stimulated patient, we can actually see a nice space developing to, again, allow air to pass naturally into the airway. What does this all look like once surgery is over? Many patients ask, is there going to be any visible signs of my surgery? And the answer is almost none. None of our patients have complained that they even see the incision. Most of us have heard that they don't even know they had the surgery. As you can see, the neck incision heals virtually without a trace. The incision on the chest will continue to disappear. And the incision that goes into the chest wall by the lungs again, is almost unrecognizable. The surgery leaves almost no visible sign. Patients can go back to wearing clothing as they would like. They can go back to their normal lifestyle, and nobody will know that they are wearing a hypoglossal nerve stimulator to help them with their apnea. So what are the post-op considerations? Initially, we did observe our first group of patients overnight to make sure that they had no problems after surgery. However, we now make this as an ambulatory procedure. Patients come in, you have your surgery, and you go home the same day. Sometimes you'll have your arm in a sling just to take pressure off of where the wires are. Except for that, there is no other visible sign. You can resume a normal diet. Your activities should be light. You don't want any big arm movements going upward that might pull on the wires until they have healed in place. Patients are seen one week follow-up to look at their suture lines. The sutures we use are all dissolvable. Nothing needs to be removed. Strenuous activity should be limited, especially in the shoulder. You don't want to lift or reach for something high on the shelf. The pain and swelling in the incision site is usually not a problem and is gone within the first week. One month after the implant, you can resume all normal activities. At the same time, you will revisit the pulmonary department and Dr. Greenberg's team so that they can actually activate your device and you can go back to a better and more normal life. Thank you, Harley and Mark, for your excellent 
truly excellent discussions on this new and exciting therapy. I do have some questions, which I'd like to address to each of you. Uh, we'll start with you, Mark. All right. Do you think this is a therapy that patients will accept? For now, patients who are getting treated for, treated for sleep apnea have been treated basically with non-invasive treatments, externally applied treatments, or an oral appliance. When they hear about surgery, they usually step away. How do you think, what do you think the acceptance of this will be? Well, the acceptance has been universally, I want this procedure. And when you say therapy that we've used before has not been surgical and non-invasive, CPAP is non-invasive, but it interferes with the patient's normal life. It interferes with the person who they are living with, with their wives, their girlfriends. It also, if it is non-compliant, it's not working, and the patients still have sleep apnea, which can be very dangerous. This device is not visible. You don't have to carry a machine with you. You just carry a little remote control, and you push a button at night wherever you are in the world, and your sleep apnea will go away. As far as surgery, it's ambulatory, meaning they come in, they have it done, and they go home. You're eating a regular meal, reading the New York Times, watching TV that same night back at home. So is it acceptable? Patients are actually trying to get accepted. They want this, they want a normal life back. Thank you. Oh, I think that patients with moderate to severe sleep apnea who have a high burden of symptoms who are sleepy during the day, who have disturbed sleep at night, who wake up with headaches, have cardiovascular consequences of sleep apnea, who are not doing well with CPAP therapy, are looking for every alternative they can to get back a normal functional status during the day. And this is a very reasonable option. It's not for everybody, but it is a very useful addition to our therapeutic armamentarium for this really widespread condition. Thank you very much. I'd like to address the cost of this therapy. CPAP costs $500, $1,000, maybe an oral appliance might cost $2,000 or $3,000. I can imagine that this is a very expensive therapy, whether it's covered by insurance or not. What do you think about the cost of this? So first of all, we have been uniformly successful so far in getting insurance to understand the role for this therapy and to obtain coverage. Because it involves a new technology, costs are initially high, but they're expected to come down. It does involve the skills of uh, an otolaryngology surgeon, the resources of the OR, so it's going to have increased upfront costs. But since this is an effective therapy that patients use for the whole night, in contrast with CPAP, where three, four hours a night seems to be the average, you're getting coverage for the entirety of the night and we hope improvements in downstream health effects of obstructive sleep apnea. So if we can have an impact on the downstream cardiovascular consequences, cerebrovascular consequences, if we can prevent one motor vehicle accident due to falling asleep at the wheel, I think it's money well spent. I think that's a very, very fair response. Heart attack or a stroke is a very expensive consequence. As is the public health threat of twofold increase in risk of motor vehicle accidents from untreated sleep apnea if we can make a dent in that with this therapy and we need to see the long-term outcomes of that then I, I think it's a good investment. Um, can I just say more important than just the individual motor vehicle accident which may involve several people are the people who are employed in the public interest that drive trains, 
that drive ferry boats. All know recently there have been numerous accidents where multiple people have been injured or killed, and it is coming out that many of the operators of trains or some of these ferry boats actually had sleep apnea and obviously not adequately treated. So if you add that into the formula, this becomes a very inexpensive therapy, both for the individual and public at large. Thank you. Now, in my first talk, I talked about the millions of people in this country with sleep apnea. Do we really think that millions of people are going to get implantable devices to treat their apnea? So I think we're moving in many aspects of medicine, including sleep medicine, to more personalized therapeutic decisions. So uh, clearly this is not a therapy for everybody. Uh, just look at the inclusion criteria, uh, body mass index of 32 or less. Uh, as any of you who've treated sleep apnea patients know, uh, about 60% of sleep apnea patients are quite obese, about 40% are not. And just by the BMI criteria alone, many patients won't qualify for this. So the utility here is to add to the therapeutic options so that we can choose the right therapy for the right patient. There are patients for whom Inspire therapy will be life-changing, and there are others who are just not candidates for this. And we have our current therapies, as well as the therapies that may be developing in the future for them. So personalized medicine, I think, is going to be the way to go. And Mark, a final question. How do we view this device? How do we view Inspire? Is this a final product, or is this the first generation iPhone, and should patients be waiting for the iPhone 7 or 8 or the iPhone X that's coming out? Should they be waiting for the next device? Well, I think if you keep waiting for the next device, it's just like putting a man on the moon. We still would not have been there. However, these devices work. They are well into the development phase. We're already into our second device. Now they are MRI compatible and actually smaller with longer life batteries. So the technology has already evolved. Will it evolve further in the future? In the future, all technologies evolve. But right now the device works. The patient's apnea is treated. It has gone away. The patients are happy. Waiting is not going to gain anything for the long-term health results of a patient. When are you going to get your heart attack? It could be today or it could be a month from now. It could be three years from now. Waiting is not going to help with a therapy that we know works right now. Will things change in the future? Like everything, of course. But the therapy works. They're already on their second generation. And will it evolve in the future? Let's hope so. I, I certainly agree. And one of the benefits of this therapy is you turn it on when you go to sleep, you turn it off when you wake up. You don't have to think about keeping it on at night. Uh, it's not like CPAP where patients take it off during the night and cover only half of their night with three, four hours of use, with the remainder of the night being subjected to oxygen desaturations and sleep fragmentation. Uh, this therapy should cover the whole night, and that's a big advance. So, sure, you can always wait for the next generation, but in the meantime, you're exposed to the health consequences, the quality of life consequences, of untreated sleep apnea, and this is an FDA-approved therapy. It's gone through its clinical trials several years ago, uh, and it is ready for use right now. Mark, Harley, thank you very much for your time and your attention.